You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to this week's version of Healthcare Insight. You're on America's Web Radio, and I'm Ron Bachman. If you've been a regular listener to this podcast, you know that we've been talking about health insurance reform in various shapes, sizes, ideas, but mainly we've been focusing on free market ideas rather than a government takeover of healthcare. Well, last week we started talking about the Democratic proposals, the Biden proposals, if you will, because the Democratic Convention was underway. So we outlined some of the problems and issues. I read directly from their website and made some commentary about it. And I promise this week we're going to do the Republican healthcare proposals. And we're going to do the same thing. We're going to talk from their website, and then I'm going to provide some commentary. Now, as a conservative Republican myself, I'm trying to be balanced. And I want to say at the outset that the Democrats have a proposal, a concept that they were very easily describing last week. People understand Medicare for all because they understand a little bit about Medicare, even if they're not covered by Medicare. And there's a broad consensus of Democrats, which is typical about any kind of legislation. As I mentioned, when I worked with Democrats on passing mental health legislation, they really didn't care about the details of the legislation. They just wanted to get something passed. And then if there were problems, they would correct it later. Well, I've also worked with Republicans on legislation. And it's much more difficult. They don't tend to coalesce around a given proposal. They don't have that same attitude. They want to get everything right, everything perfect. They want to have a broad, comprehensive concept. And I'm not sure that they really understand, that is, the Republicans don't really understand the idea of getting something done and how to create a really free market. Many of the experts in Washington that are Republicans that have been elected over the last number of years are physicians. And so much of the reform that I'm going to talk about is not really about health insurance as much as it seems to be about health care. And there are a lot of issues around health care that are great ideas, and we're going to talk about them in this hour. But there's very few details on the financing of that health care in terms of health insurance reform. I believe too much of what they do are sort of catchphrases, bumper sticker slogans. And they haven't really put any of this into a legislative package or near legislative package that can be easily understood by the public. The delivery of health care and all the different issues about reimbursement and competition among doctors and hospitals and certificate of need changes and any willing provider, it's all very inside baseball. And I think that's because many of these really good ideas to change the delivery of health care are coming from doctors who are very knowledgeable about that process. But very few people in Washington, D.C., in Congress, and the Republican Party seem to, they seem to lack the understanding of a health insurance remarket. And really, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, if you will, is really more about the health insurance reform than it ever really was about health care reform. 
So if Republicans are going to repeal Obamacare or substantially change it, they really need to have a better understanding of health insurance. Now, if you take a look at the website for the Republican National Committee or the Trump Campaign Committee websites, there's very, very little on health care insurance reform. It's very difficult to even find some of the ideas, and I fault the Republicans for that. In fact, if you look on the Republican National Committee website and look at their platform around health care, it doesn't exist. What they have for this campaign is an exact copy of what they had in 2016. So it's a bunch of promises and ideas about what could be done if President Trump was elected. But was he was suggesting what he was going to do in 2016, so it hasn't even been updated. I guess because the Republican National Committee and the Democratic National Committee really are in this virtual stage where they really don't have the caucuses to redo a platform. So they basically just say, whatever we said four years ago, we're going to carry forward. At least that's what the website has at this point. So I'm very critical of the Republican Party and not being able to put together a consolidated, simple idea on what they would do for health insurance and even health care reform. But let's look at the positive side, because I'm going to be very critical as I go through this process of looking at what the Republicans have not done and what I think they should do in order to win on the issue of health care reform, health insurance reform, whichever term you want. I'm not sure the public really would fully know the difference. We've tried to explain it many times on this program that health insurance reform is how you finance care, and that's what hits individuals' pockets. They understand what costs them money in terms of health insurance. The health care reform is how you get the services from your doctors and hospitals. And yes, that has an impact on your pocketbook as well with deductibles and coinsurance. But much of the costs that are covered by insurance that drives up your insurance premiums has to do with some of the ideas around health care reform that the public really doesn't get into, doesn't fully understand or appreciate. Because the number one issue that is in front of them are their health insurance premiums each month, whether that's the premiums that they pay for an individual policy where they're buying it in full, or whether it's their employer's program where their contribution to the health insurance premium that's subsidized by the employer, but their contribution is coming out of their paycheck. So they see that. But let's go to some of the actual words that the Republicans put out on health insurance. Because many of the things that they do in the um, Health and Human Services website, which talks about what has been done, is around what the president has put together in terms of executive orders and changes to regulations, but it's not really a health insurance proposal that the public can pick up and go forward on. So there's sort of a, uh, you know, a beat their own drum on the things that they've done, which have been good, but it's not really a health insurance reform proposal that the public can really understand. For example, and I'll go sort of backwards in time, 
One of the more current things was in November of 2019, when the president signed an executive order around transparency. When people go to the hospital or the doctors, do they know what their costs are going to be? Not today. But here's the wording from the Health and Human Services website about that executive order. It says, first, the HHS, the Department of Labor, and the Department of Treasury are proposing today to require that your insurer provide you with real-time access via an online tool to cost-sharing information, an estimate of what you would owe for all covered services, all covered health care items and services. This is information patients typically receive after they actually get those services through an explanation of benefits, a document you usually get, but it's after your services. Going back to the language, we are proposing to require that insurers negotiated rates for in-hospital services and their historically paid amounts for out-of-network services be made publicly available to consumers, employers, researchers, and app developers. Researchers and entrepreneurs would be able to use this data to deliver comprehensive information to consumers about cost information for the care they need. There is no way that the public or the media in any of the press releases, any of the stories about healthcare, have ever explained this and how absolutely important this is to create transparency of prices so that we can actually have negotiations and the people know that you might not just want to go to some brand hospital or or recognized provider uh, that doesn't have good outcomes and has high costs. Sometimes they just go on their reputation as opposed to the reality of infection rates or recovery rates, success rates in surgeries, whatever it is. This is a major change, and we've talked about it in previous podcasts. But that's the kind of thing that has to be done by executive order today because of the conflict between Republicans and Democrats and there being no control or no agreement about how we would move forward because Obamacare is so ingrained in the Democratic psyche, they're not looking to even change it or really improve it with any free market ideas or competitive ideas, and Republicans are just unable to convince Democrats to vote with them to make the kinds of changes that would be required. So we wind up with executive orders. Another change in the regulation, their executive order was in October of 2018, when the Treasury and Labor Departments proposed a rule that would provide employers with significant new flexibility in how they fund health coverage through health reimbursement arrangements, or HRAs. This was another major change that the Obama administration and the financing of insurance uh, prevented, and it took a change of regulation, a reinterpretation of the ACA laws that actually allow employers to offer a health reimbursement arrangement so that employees could take that money and go buy an individual insurance policy. That, under Obamacare, was not allowed. There's a whole list of these types of of items. For example, in 2018, there's also an executive order that allowed for the purchase of short-term and limited-duration insurance. In 2018, there was an allowance by executive order to provide for association health plans so that small employers and sole proprietors could get together and pool their resources 
to buy more cost-effective insurance and to control their own destiny on the types of coverages they want. In 2018, there was something called a, an American Patients First Act. It allowed for the Food and Drug Administration uh, to develop and allow for generic drug approvals on a rapid pace. In 2017, under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the individual mandate was eliminated. The HHS and Treasury also issued revised guidance on something that was very inside baseball called Section 1332 of the Affordable Care Act. 1332 allows states to have more flexibility, but the reality was the Obama administration didn't really provide for much flexibility, and the requirements to request flexibility was so stringent that the flexibility was very restrictive. But now under an executive order, new regulation interpretation, 1332 is allowed somewhere around 12 or 13 states to actually take a new direction on health insurance reform for the individual and small group marketplaces. Well, time goes by fast when we're going through some of this stuff. It's already time to take a quick break. So I want to take a quick break, and we're going to come right back. I'm going to delve into some of these changes that are allowed and some of the problems and issues and successes of health insurance reform on the Republican side. We'll be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today on Healthcare Insight, we're talking about the Republican proposals for health reform. What they've done, what they're promising to do, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So while I'm a conservative Republican and would like the Republicans to put together an easily explainable, simple, something the public can get behind, something that you can explain to your neighbor when they ask, well, what are Republicans trying to do? Something that can counteract the idea on the Democratic side that they can just say, well, we're for uh, Medicare for all. Seniors seem to like Medicare. They really don't know what they could have, and we may talk about that later as to what Medicare for all really means and what the problems and issues are. But today we're really talking about Republican health care proposals, and I'm trying to read from the actual website documents. Now, unfortunately, as I mentioned in the previous segment, there's really not much teeth in what the Republicans have put together on their campaign sites. Republican National Committee a website. So what I've tried to draw on in the last segment was what's actually on um, HHS or Health and Human Services website about what has been done, and they're substantial. I mean, without 
actual legislation, the president has, or some of his people behind him, have really understood the issues around health care and even health insurance that could really make a difference through executive order or a reinterpretation of Obamacare, uh, a loosening of the requirements, just like he's loosened and removed um, mandates and regulations and other areas of our economy. He has certainly, the Trump administration has certainly done that uh, around health care uh, to the great benefit of options and choices and prices in the healthcare market. But it's not a plan. It's great initiatives that other administrations would never have taken. It's initiatives that a Clinton administration never would have taken. But Trump has, to his credit. But it's still not a plan. So let's go back to the website language that's on Health and Human Services about health reform for the Republican administration. And I'll quote here. While the administration has made much progress in reforming the American health care system, significant obstacles remain. This report identifies four areas where federal and state rules inhibit adequate choice and competition and offers recommendations for improving public policy in each of these four areas. So let's talk about these four areas. Again, this is not a plan, but it's an, a listing of some areas where if they put together a plan, these items would be part of that. Now, again, to be fair, the Biden plan isn't in legislative form either. It's a lot of promises that we talked about. But Trump has been in office long enough that I really would have expected a little bit more of a structured policy. But these are policy ideas and initiatives that are important. But again, they focus mainly around health care and not quite as much as I would prefer around health insurance because that's what people see is their cost of their insurance premiums. But let's talk about each of these four areas that were just mentioned. The first one is healthcare workforce and labor markets. Let me explain what that is here on the website. It says, reduce competition among clinicians leads to higher prices for healthcare services. It reduces choice and negatively impacts overall healthcare quality and the efficient allocation of resources. Government policies have suppressed competition by reducing the available supply of providers and restricting the range of services that they can offer. This report recommends policies that will broaden providers' scope of practice while improving workforce mobility, including telehealth, to encourage innovation and to allow providers more easy access to meet patients' needs. The report recommends that the federal government streamline funding for graduate medical education to allocate taxpayer dollars efficiently and to address physician supply shortages. Well, there's a couple of things in that first item. The first one is really important, and that is this idea of scope of practice. You see, in the past, there's been a lot of what some would call guild wars, guild wars, 
that is, physicians kind of protect their area of expertise, like writing prescriptions, doing certain services that a physician's assistant or a licensed nurse can do. Or if you're a psychiatrist, you want to hold on to the idea of being able to prescribe psychotropic drugs so that a psychologist can only do cognitive therapy and can't do the medication part of it. When psychologists can clearly, and many have been trained, especially the military has trained a lot of psychologists to actually be able to prescribe. So you got to take certain courses so that, and you're only prescribing psychotropics. You're not providing or prescribing other medications that don't have to do with uh, mental illnesses. So this scope of practice broadening is a really critical part of health care reform. Now, the second one that they mentioned in this um, area is about the physician supply shortages. And clearly we have that. We have so many physicians, and we've been talking about this for a long time, about older physicians retiring, and they're not encouraging their children to get into the practice of medicine because of the craziness, rules, and restrictions, and, and liability issues that physicians uh, face these days. But clearly there needs to be something to encourage this graduate medical education and creating an environment where the scope of practice can be broadened, as we just talked about, because a lot of rural areas uh, don't have family practitioners. Um, So if they had more of a physician's assistant that can work uh, remotely with a physician or multiple uh, physician assistants working with one local doctor, or they had um, um, licensed nurses that could do more of the services. There needs to be a broadening of the scope of practice that would really help solve a lot of the um, uh, physician supply issues, as well as encouraging more people to actually get into medicine and not just get in to be high-paid specialists, but to be family practitioners, internists, and general practitioners. Well, the second area... Uh, of reform that's being proposed is entitled Healthcare Provider Markets. So let me read what that one means. So state policies that restrict entry into provider markets can stifle innovation and more cost-effective ways to provide care while limiting choice and competition. These policies have resulted in higher healthcare prices and fewer initiatives for providers to improve quality. This report makes several recommendations to promote choice and competition in provider markets, including state action to repeal or scale back certificate of need laws and encourage the development of value-based payment models that offer flexibility and risk-based incentives for providers, especially without duly burdening small or rural practices. Let me unpack that a little bit. Probably the most important item that's mentioned here is this concept of certificate of need, sometimes referred to just simply as a CON, certificate of need. And what that is, is that hospitals been able to protect themselves from competing hospitals, whether in total or for various services like cancer centers. And states historically, uh, many states still have them on the books, but states historically would implement certificate of need requirements that said you can't build a hospital here unless you can prove there is a need here, but what it really was was re- restricting competition. 
And those laws still exist, and hospitals use them to prevent other hospitals from coming in with competing services and lower prices. And so they're saying we need to repeal or scale back these certificate of need laws, which would create more hospital competition, when today hospitals are consolidating and they create a dominance in the marketplace that is not benefiting the consumer at all. The other thing that's mentioned here are some terms that are a little bit uh, inside baseball, value-based payment models and risk-based incentives for providers. And what they're getting at there is instead of what's sometimes referred to as a fee-for-service, I need a service from a hospital or a doctor, and I pay them a a set amount for that. Um, What the payment could be based on is that they are actually doing services that are estimated to provide increased value. Or they're doing something that if they do it appropriately and I have a better outcome, they are at risk and they can get an incentive for doing the risk-based approach that's beneficial. So they can make more than just the, the fee that I, I would normally pay them, but they can get incentives on top of that. And there's some really good models around the country that are testing these areas out. And if the federal government would allow that uh, expansion of those ideas, uh, we'd be much better off. Let me look at the third area, healthcare insurance markets. So this does get into some of the insurance concerns that I had, but it's a very brief area. This one and the next one are more insurance and consumer oriented. The first one reads, government mandates often reduce choice and competition in insurance markets and increase overall premiums. In the individual and small group markets, many consumers face limited coverage options that cover the services they do not want or need and that drive up premiums, while others have been completely priced out of the market. Regulations that limit coverage choices should be changed so that states have more flexibility to develop policies that account for diverse consumer preferences. This report recommends scaling back government mandates, eliminating barriers to competition, and allowing consumers maximum opportunity to purchase health insurance that meets their needs. All the right words. But the issue is there's no real teeth to that. The only thing I would say that I like out of this paragraph is the focus on individual and small group markets. As we've talked about on this program in many past weeks, that is the market that is in most need of reform. Larger employers are under an entirely federal, different federal law called ERISA, but it's the individual and small group markets that are being strangled with regulation. And what they're talking about here are proposals that would free up these markets and allow more choices and options and competition. The fourth area I'll just touch on briefly, it's entitled Consumer-Driven Healthcare, and I'll read a little bit of that. Our healthcare system's excessive reliance on third-party reimbursement insulates consumers from the true price of healthcare and offers them little incentive to search for low-cost, high-quality care. This is the basic problem with our insurance system, if it pays too much, if it pays too much, you have third-party distortion. People want to get everything they can. If it pays too little, you have high deductibles. So how, what's the in-between ground? It's promoting and expanding health savings accounts and health reimbursement arrangements that would put more power and control of money in the consumer's hands. That's a big area of emphasis, and I love the fact that they're talking about uh, health savings accounts expansions and HRA expansion, but again, it's not put into a cohesive policy as to how we really uh, transform the insurance marketplace. Well, let's take another quick break, and we're going to come back and we're going to complete this hour in the next two segments talking about the Republican plan 
for health insurance reform and the ideas that a extended Trump administration would try to implement. Be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Healthcare Insight. I'm Ron Bachman, and you're on America's Web Radio. And what we've been talking about today is the Republican health care plans. We're in the middle of the Republican convention, and last week when we were in the middle of the Democratic convention, we talked about the Democratic plan or the Biden plan. So this week we're talking about the Trump plan. And if you haven't been listening to the earlier segments, let me make it clear. I'm very disappointed that Republicans haven't put together a more cohesive plan. What I'm very pleased with is that they put together a lot of parts out there that could lead to a good, solid health care plan, but there's very little, as I've talked about going through this hour, around health insurance reform. And Obamacare, at its core, is really about health insurance. Yes, it has issues around health care and reimbursements and Medicaid reform and expansions and all that sort of stuff. But what people really feel, what the voters will feel this November, are their pocketbook issues. And their pocketbook issues are not so much how much the doctor costs, because most of that is third-party reimbursements, your insurance company or employer or the federal government is somehow paying most of that bill. What people are interested in is what are my premiums going to be? What's my out-of-pocket expenses? And premiums get to health insurance reform, and that's what I wish there was more of. But having said that, let's go through the good, because I've already described and I've already beat up the Republican proposals over the lack of real focus on insurance reform. They've sort of tossed out a little bit on the insurance reform with the uh, last segment we talked about, where they talked about increasing competition and eliminating mandates and barriers uh, to creating a free market. They talked about health, consumer-driven health care and HRAs and HSAs. But, you know, at the end of the day, that's sort of um, bumper sticker uh, slogans that they've been talking about for a long time, along with coverage of pre-existing conditions, but they don't explain how they would set up a system to do that. So I've said that, I've been very clear. But what I want to talk about now are talking about the ideas on what to a large degree is health care reform. Because after we would do health insurance reform, in my opinion, if we did that first, then we can tackle 
the provider side of the equation, the health care reform, which we really have a lot of in the Republican proposal because there are a lot of Republican doctors that have been elected and a lot of the uh, doctors have been inputting to the administration on the kinds of reforms that they want. So the first thing that um, I'll mention is that they um, is they want to address the potential antitrust and provider consolidation that's going on. And let me read from the uh, website on that. It says the administration should continue monitoring market competition, especially in areas that may be less competitive and thus more likely to be affected by alternative payment models. And the second item under the antitrust and provider consolidation is the administration should ascertain the impact of horizontal and vertical integration among provider practices and on competitive competitive prices. Now, notice the language there. Well, it's a good concept. We clearly have to be worried about antitrust because the systems of delivery of care are getting larger and larger. They're consolidation of hospitals, consolidation of physician practices, and it means that prices are just going up. So notice that it just says the, the active words in here aren't really all that active. It says continue monitoring. Well, we need to do more than continue monitoring in the legislative language of actually doing something in the future uh, would be more appropriate. Uh, the administration should ascertain the impact. Well, that sounds like some study committee. Why haven't they already done that to talk about the integration of provider practices and the impact on prices? Good concept, not really good follow-through. Let's talk about scope of practice, because that's a really big one in my mind. It's a great area for the administration, ultimately, in any legislation uh, to tackle. What is scope of practice? It's how each provider, whether you're, you're a physician's assistant, whether you're a, an actual MD, whether you're a, a, a licensed uh, a nurse, whether you're a psychologist or psychiatrist, whatever your um, uh, allied practice might be if you're not an MD, how much can you do? What are the restrictions that are placed on you now legally? And the reality is that those people can do more than what they're legally allowed to do, but because of what many refer to as guild wars, in other words, those different those different um, uh, uh, labels that each have, the different letters behind their names actually uh, create organizations and those organizations fight for limiting what other people can do so they don't encroach on the practices of, of their members. But let me read a couple of the items under the scope of practice. It says states should consider changes to their scope of practice statutes to allow all healthcare providers to practice to the top of their license, utilizing their full skill set. Great idea, general concept. It's kind of pushing it back to the states. If we have national legislation, national legislation could more directly address what the state should do. Yes, the state should make changes because at this point it's been a state scope of practice. But we really don't need to have each state being structured around who can practice and who can't. So as you move from one state to another one, you used to be seeing a, um, a physician's assistant that did most of the, the the primary care work that you need, most of your family care needs. Then you go to another state, and that can't happen. We need to have some national standards around scope of practice. Another item under scope of practice is the federal government and states should consider 
accompanying legislation and administrative proposals to allow non-physician and non-dentist providers to be paid directly for their services where evidence supports that the provider can safely and effectively provide that care. Well, what that's getting into is sort of the concierge service. So instead of paying through an insurance company, it should be allowed to sort of work with uh, non-physicians or non-dentist providers uh, to pay them directly. And, again, it gets into the scope of practice. Can a um, hygienist open up her own practice to clean teeth, or does she have to be uh, working in a dentist's office? Or maybe it's just under the supervision of a dentist who's not on site. Let's read another thing because it's such an important area. Let's, let's read another item here that they have on their website. States should consider eliminating requirements for rigid collaborative practice and supervision agreements between physicians and dentists and their care extenders, that is, physician assistants and hygienists, that are not justified by legitimate health and safety concerns. The same issue again. But notice, again, it says states should consider. Again, I believe we should have some federal standards for licensing and practicing and not just um, have a mishmash of different state uh, requirements on who can do what. We're a mobile society. We live in different areas. We should have more cross-state licensing uh, allowances. Let's move on to another item here that they call Improve Workforce Mobility. And again, I'm going to read. I want you to listen carefully to the active verbs that are being used on what and who should do what. Under this category of Improve Workforce Mobility, it says states should consider adopting interstate compacts and model laws that improve license portability, either by granting practitioners licensed in one state a privilege to practice elsewhere or by expediting the process for obtaining licensure in multiple states. Well, clearly, as we move into the digital world, this whole idea of state licensing doesn't make a lot of sense. Right now, when you have x-rays, you you may have a radiologist that's reading this thing in Taiwan, um, in a foreign country, let alone a foreign state. So the idea of technology and and telemedicine um, having state licensure really is something that is kind of antiquated. We need to be able to move on. But notice they're saying states should consider. Again, I think under any federal legislation to replace Obamacare, these areas really require some federal legislation. The next item under this um, improved workforce mobility is the federal government should consider legislation and administrative proposals to encourage the formation of interstate compacts or model laws that would allow practitioners to more easily move across state lines, thereby encouraging greater mobility of health care service providers. Amen. That should have been the only part under here. It shouldn't just be states should consider. It should be the federal government and not just should consider, but the federal government should legislate that kind of interstate compact and model legislation that all states uh, are under the obligation for. Let's move on to another really good idea that should be put into any legislation, but to date has not, and it really focuses again on health care reform as as opposed to health insurance reform. But that's okay. These ideas hopefully will make it into a package at some point. But under facilitate telehealth to improve patient access, let me just read the words under that. It said states should consider adopting licensure compacts or model laws that improve licensure portability 
by allowing healthcare providers to more easily practice in multiple states, thereby creating additional opportunities for telehealth practice. Interstate licensure compacts and model laws should foster the harmonization of state licensure standards and approaches to telehealth. Once again, great idea. Telehealth is coming along. Why do we need individual state licensure? If you go to school, you get your license, you get your approval as as a um, uh, internal medicine or family practitioner or one of the specialists, why is it then limited to getting a licensure in that state except that there has been this idea of restricting uh, practices of medicine where we're moving into a new world and I hope any legislation goes well beyond these talking points that are in the Republican um, uh, proposals or in HHS as a Republican proposal. So it goes on and it also states in the same area trying to uh, create some what the federal government should explore legislation around this whole telehealth. Again, why do states and then a separate bullet about federal? Let's just get the federal government to step up and create a unified national standards for delivery of care when you're going through a uh, digital format of telehealth. One more item I want to talk about in this section. That is, this this particular category is headed up reforming America's healthcare system through choice and competition. Great words, great bumper sticker. Let's see what they actually say. Well, the first bullet point under that says states generally should consider allowing individual healthcare providers and payers to mutually determine whether and when it's safe and appropriate to provide telehealth services, including when there has not been a prior in-person visit. Well, let me explain what's happening there, is that many of the guilds out there, the physicians in particular, don't want you to have a checkup by telehealth unless you've been seen in person. So by having that seen in person, when there's so many things you can do without being seen directly, the, the, the monitoring mechanisms, the the ability to see down your throat, to, to check uh, your your vitals, is, is clearly available with the technology, and that's going to get only better. So, again, the mealy-mouth language in these Republican proposals that states should generally consider. Well, stop about this considering stuff. States should do this, and the federal government should make national policies to make telehealth available across the board and fight these guild wars that are going on and the restrictions, it's not patient-focused. These ideas are coming from physicians and physician associations. These, these ideas are great. Don't mistake what I'm saying here. They are great ideas, but they can perpetuate the guild wars because most of this stuff has been written by physicians themselves or physician lobbyists. Well, the next one must have slipped by somewhere because the next category says ease restrictions on foreign trained doctors. Well, it seems like all doctors these days do seem to be foreign trained. So there's more there that the Department of Health and Human Services in coordination with the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education should identify foreign medical residency programs comparable in quality and rigor to American programs. Amen. Wouldn't that be nice to have them certified and guaranteed that these are coming from quality organizations. Well, we're up against the timeline again. I hope uh, some of these thoughts are generating some uh, uh, ideas in your own mind. Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back and wrap this session up on what the Republican ideals are proposing. 
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Healthcare Insight. We're going to finish up today's session on the Republican health care proposals. And let's see how this really turns out. It's um, Republican Convention Week, and I wanted to talk about the Republican proposal, just like we talked last week about the Democratic proposal. So if you've been listening to this whole program closely, you know where I stand. The Democrats have got an easily explained concept of Medicare for all or a public option that's Medicare that basically is a a Trojan horse for getting uh, Medicare for everybody and then ultimately a single-payer government-controlled health care system. For the Republicans... They've got a lot of great ideas, especially around health care reform, but not so much about health insurance reform, but they have no plan that they can easily describe to the American public and American voter, who I think is going to be very concerned about health care issues and what happens if we get rid of Obamacare, which they've come to know now since it's been 10 years since it was passed. So what are the Republicans really going to do? Do they have a plan that people can understand. And I just haven't seen it as much as I would like as a conservative Republican. I would like the Republicans to have something more forceful, more organized, more put together that would explain what they want to do uh, if they went back to presidency, went back to House and retain the Senate so that they can actually uh, vote on a health reform package. But The good part is there's a lot of good ideas, especially around the health care reform. So let's continue with that process in this last section because there are so many good ideas. They need to be woven into a complete package. And I'm sure they will if Republicans can uh, take that level of control of Congress. Well, the next one I'd list out is streamline federal funding of medical education. As proposed in the fiscal year 2019 president's budget, the federal government should streamline federal health and human services spending on graduate medical education, streamline and put it into a single graduate medical education grant program. The budget proposal would also provide the secretary with the authority to modify amounts distributed to hospitals based on the proportion of residents training and proprietary um, specialties or programs uh, and based on the criteria identified by the secretary. So it gives a lot of power to the secretary to decide, the secretary of HHS, to decide where these graduate medical education grants go. But bring them together, there's a lot of different programs out there, and they can be consolidated and have much more effective impact on generating new physicians to go out into the marketplace where we're losing more than are coming in today. Um, Next area of idea we talked about a little bit in some of the other sections, and that's uh, repeal and scale back the certificate of need. Uh, That's an ancient, uh, anachronistic um, concept of preventing hospitals from being built until they can prove that um, they're not really in competition with other hospitals, that there's a need in a market. Well, we need competition is the real key here. Let's go to another area. I'm just going to touch on these quickly because there's so many good ideas, and I can't explain them all in this last uh, segment of the program, but they want to amend the Federal Trade Commission jurisdiction over not-for-profits. 
and says Congress should amend the Federal Trade Commission Act to extend Federal Trade Commission's jurisdiction to not-for-profit healthcare entities to prevent unfair methods of competition. That was the not-for-profits are getting a tax break. And they're not really doing work of a not-for-profit. They're still really, in essence, for-profit operations that do very little real public service of treating the uninsured or writing off bad debts. And they inflate those numbers to begin with. So, you know, the government would be better off if the not-for-profits actually were taxed, and then that tax money can be used to help the uninsured and those in, in real need. Next area is scrutinized non-compete clauses and other restrictive covenants. Here, what you have is providers that may be working for a hospital, may their per- practices may have been purchased by a hospital, and as a result, um, if they were to leave the hospital and try to go out on their own or try to create some competition, they would have a, um, uh, a non-compete clause. In other words, they couldn't practice in the area uh, that they were previously practicing in, so it prevents uh, competition. Another good idea is to scrutinize any willing provider laws. Now, I know a lot of these comments are kind of inside baseball for many, but you can tell from the name of the general area that these are all around healthcare and around the provider community. And any willing provider laws um, means that if somebody that's not on some negotiated uh, limited network to keep costs low, they, they pay very little. And so once they do that, they close the door to um, doctors or hospitals. And the reality is that hurts the consumer because if, if your physician is not a part of that network, there ought to be a way for you to keep your physician, for that physician to accept the requirements of the network and continue to provide the services for you. If this is really consumer-oriented, if this is really about the patient and about you and me, um, your doctor is some as a relationship you should keep and not have to change providers just because of some negotiated contract that your insurance company has been through. So now let's talk about uh, another one. It says loosen network adequacy requirements. And let me read through this. It says the administration should continue to provide flexible network adequacy standards for Medicare Advantage and other federally sponsored programs and avoid stringent requirements that are not conducive to innovation and modern medicine and do not allow states flexibility to meet their specific needs. Now, in general, I'm not too interested and not sure it's a great idea to loosen network adequacy requirements in and of themselves because today networks are too tight. But if we got and allowed more leniency in developing telemedicine and allowing for licensing across state lines, then this whole network adequacy kind of goes by the wayside because your network isn't just your local uh, physicians, your local providers, because you can use telemedicine to get your even primary care services from somebody outside your area. So if you package that with the idea of telemedicine and digital medicine, um, then that, that, that would work. The next area is says loosen insurance rules and mandates. Well, praise the Lord. That would be a good thing if we could do that. It says the administration should continue to work with Congress to enact legislation that remedies key problems 
resulting from the Affordable Care Act that promotes greater choice and competition in healthcare markets, and that produces a significant, a sustainable government healthcare financing structure. Well, I'm not sure what all that really means. It's kind of a little bit of um, mumbo jumbo inside baseball kind of a thing, but certainly we ought to loosen the rules on state mandates, eliminate them, but there's some other ways that that could be done as well. I'm not always for loosening the insurance rules if they're not benefiting the consumer. And so I'd like to see more details in that particular area to see what they're really talking about. All right, the next area is reforming America's healthcare system through choice and competition. Sounds like, um, you know, motherhood and apple pie. But where it says underneath that, It says, similarly, the administration should provide states with the maximum ability to expand healthcare choice and competition and create sustainable financing structure. Well, the problem is that we've had so much consolidation, it's going to be difficult to create more competition for the insurance companies. And how do you break up the hospital systems that have been coalescing? That's going to be a really difficult thing to do. It's not really saying that as I read it. But certainly the idea of more choice and competition would be good if we haven't gone over the edge in some marketplaces where that's just not practical. We may have to break up some uh, existing relationships. Let's talk about replace restrictions on physician-owned hospitals. That would be a great idea. The problem now in some of the laws is that if a physician owns a hospital, they can't refer to their own hospital that they have a financial interest in. Well, if they own it, they're running it well, physicians know how to operate, they know how to provide the services. Hospitals are basically just sort of, think of them as empty buildings that provide access to physicians to actually operate or do other services within that building structure. So why shouldn't uh, physicians own hospitals? We need to have the right kind of uh, transparency on costs, on quality, and then who cares who owns it if, in fact, we know uh, what is going on in terms of the quality of services in there. Uh, there's a number of other items here, uh, realign incentives. Uh, reading under that, it says Congress should expand consumers' ability to benefit from health savings accounts, including by allowing a greater number of plans. In other words, any plan uh, should really have the ability to have an HSA, not just some uh, d- defined in law, high deductible health plan. Uh, the administration should explore ways to administratively expand consumers' abilities to benefit from HSAs, including by interpreting preventive services to allow HSA-qualified plans greater ability to cover preventive low-cost treatments for chronic conditions. What that's all about is HSAs um, need to be able to cover any and all services that you would have. You need to be able to Utilize those dollars um, uh, based on the consumer's needs, not on what some insurance company restrictions might be. There's a whole list of other items. They want to talk about changing the delivery system and reforming that. Uh, that is the, uh, the whole doctor-patient relationship, the whole relationship for the elderly on Medicare Advantage plans. They want to get into positively realigning incentives through payment reform. Instead of having what's called fee-for-service, a doctor does the service and you pay them, they want to create more incentives for the physician to do the right thing and not do too much, not do too little, but to incentivize them based upon outcomes and the quality of what they're doing. 
The next area is quality improvement and the measurement of reporting of quality. So they want to put in a whole series of measures, which would be great around quality improvement, the transparency of, of physicians and hospitals on the quality of services, of infection rates, of blood clots, of mortality rates. All that sort of feeds into the next area, which is facilitate price transparency. You know, the biggest thing the Trump administration has done is create this requirement that will start on January 1st, 2021, where doctors and hospitals have to submit, have to post the price of services. You will have a right after January 1st as a patient to get in advance the likely cost to you for your deductibles, your co-insurance, any of those costs that aren't covered by an insurance company, uh, what those costs are going to be to you. And the health care plan for the Republican goes on and on. I can't even cover as many items right now. Talking about uh, choice uh, to being a longer-term view of health care, improve health IT. It just goes on and on. Great ideas. I want to take this last minute to wrap up and say Republicans need to pull all this together, put it into legislative language, put it into a greater structure so that people can understand But I really don't believe people are going to fully appreciate all the things that the Trump administration has done through executive orders, all the things they're they're proposing here, unless they include a more comprehensive structure and explanation around health insurance reform, because it's the premiums that people are really interested in. How do they control the premiums? And I know they have to cover the health care costs under your premiums, but there's utilization, there's incentives, there are things that consumers can do while we're waiting for this other stuff to happen in the health health care reform. So come back next week. We're going to keep talking about current topics on health care insights. I appreciate your interest today. I know I've been fast talking. I've been trying to cover a lot of area. Uh, come back next week, and we'll get into more health care reform as we move towards the elections. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.